0: Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 42. We've got a really great interview today with a super talented, multifaceted musician, artist, and more. But first, I wanted to have a feel-good chat about being an all-around good person. I mean, it'll hopefully be deeper than that. But if you take just one thing from it, let it be that sentence. So I've encountered a lot of people in my time in this industry. And there's one type of person that stands out to me. The type of person that wants to help you succeed even when it doesn't directly benefit them. What is wrong with these crazy people? See, when you encounter these so-called good people out in the wild, if you track their movements long enough, you'll usually find that they return to the herd and that there's a lot of them. And you know what? They're all really satisfied with their careers. They're also generally pretty successful. And they have really strong relationships with a wide network of people. They are always recommending each other for gigs and suggesting one person meet another, etc. These people have tapped into one of the secrets of a fulfilling career. They understand that you can view this industry with a mindset of abundance and not with fear and scarcity. Okay, pause. At least one of you is saying to yourself, Abundant shmundance, this is nonsense. Screw this guy. There's none of work in this industry. And the first thing I'll tell you is, that's a run on sentence. The second thing I'll tell you is, I've dropped the scarcity mindset towards work in this business, and I try to view things from the angle of abundance at all times. And that's when you're gonna come back to me and say, well, you work all the time. And my response is gonna be, you know what, I have down days, or sometimes even down weeks, and that's fine. I know that my career is not over, and that there is a gig out there that I can have if I go find it. Okay, so semi-joke rant over. Here's the thing about the abundance first scarcity argument and the kind of the point of this intro. When you have a positive outlook on the industry around you with the idea that you can all grow and it all improve and all work, then you carry that into your interactions with other people. And trust me, they see the positive light that you bring into the room. When you come from a place of scarcity, you come at the industry with a selfish angle to begin with, and that will trickle into your other actions. You won't show your assistant a technique you used after the session, or maybe you won't recommend another producer for a gig. You'll just take it, even though it's not the genre you do your best work in. See, building a successful career and strong relationships in this industry is based a lot more on the quality of person you are, and not the quantity of work you do. When you take the abundance approach, you do things like share a tip with your studio assistant, or exchange advice over coffee, or connect two people that you think would work well together, or recommend a peer for a gig because you're too busy to take it. You share and you thrive in the community thriving. And when you do stuff like this, you leave an impact on the people you're interacting with. And leaving an impact on the people is how you build a career. If you set out to leave an impact on the project or the music, well, there's that selfish angle again. Now you're so afraid there isn't enough work that you have to validate your presence on the project. And somebody else's project doesn't need your impact. It needs your skill set. They called you for a reason. And by the way, doing your best work at all times is mandatory and implied here. So if you aren't doing your best work at all times, you need to sort that out and then come back to this intro later. So to get back on track and close it out, if you support the people you're working with, you allow everyone to be their best. And that will make a project the best it can be. You can't control if something will be a hit but you can control how you show up to do the work and how you encourage and help other people to do the work. So in closing, the type of person you are matters. If you're pushing your peers to be better and you're helping people regardless of whether it helps you, everybody will recognize that. And one day you'll find yourself becoming a part of a super supportive network of like-minded people and that you will all be winning together. Today's guest is songwriter, producer, and recording artist Morgan Kibbe. Morgan grew up a classically trained pianist, cellist, and vocalist, performing with orchestras throughout her youth. Following high school, she spent seven years as a member of the band M83, during which time she played and sang on two albums, including the Grammy-nominated Hurry Up We're Dreaming. Since leaving the band, Morgan has done so much, I'll never fit it all in here, but I'm gonna try. She's contributed songwriting and production for artists such as Panic at the Disco, Harry Styles, and Lady Gaga. She also releases her own music under the moniker White Sea, including remixes of tracks by Lord and The Weeknd, and trailers for movies such as Harry Potter. And finally, in 2015, she shifted her focus to scoring, and since has done projects for Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, and The CW, including Netflix's Grand Army and Amazon's Hannah. So welcome to the show, Morgan Kibbe. Hey, Morgan, how are you?
1: Hi, I'm well. Very well. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I know uh, you just got back in town. You were at uh, Cannes Film Festival, right?
1: I was indeed, yes. Yes. With the film, uh, British film Mothering Sunday. I just did the score for that.
0: Awesome. How was? Have you been there before? How was that experience?
1: Um, this is the second time that I've been uh, lucky enough to go. I was... Uh, was at Cannes for the first time in twenty eighteen with the same filmmaker Eva Husson for a French film called Les Filles du Soleil, The Girls of the Sun. So
0: awesome. Very yeah. good. Your French is very good as well.
1: <laughs> I speak fluently. Thank you very much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Makes things a little bit easier when you're working with a French team, you know, and, and a French band for that matter. <laughs> yes, I know.
0: Yeah, I guess you spent some time over there. You would you would be able to speak French fluently. Awesome. Well, I only know really, you know what is on the internet about you, it seems like you had a really musical youth. You were playing a ton of instruments. You're classically trained. What was what was your early music career like?
1: You know, I grew up uh, my, in a household where playing an instrument, whatever it would end up being, was always very important to my parents, you know, as a gift to their children. So they had me take up the piano. So that was just a part, I think, of just my general education, and I was lucky enough to get to study privately uh, throughout my youth. But I actually started in the theater and doing lots of musical theater. So uh, music didn't really become a career until my early 20s. Um, It was more of uh, a hobby, I suppose, prior to that.
0: Okay. And this is a San Francisco area? You're from California, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was born in Alaska, but I grew up in Northern California.
0: Oh, born in Alaska. How long did you live there?
1: Um, not very long. Okay, so you. Have... <laughs> I was born. I was born in the Arctic Circle in Barrow. It's not exactly the best place to raise a small child.
0: <laughs> so, I, I guess not a lot of outside time, huh? Uh,
1: um, no, no, no. Yeah, no. My okay. par- My. I mean, I was born there, but my parents moved. I want to say like eight months after I was born. So.
0: Okay. Okay. So my understanding is, uh, you you skipped college and you somehow ended up in France playing with M eighty three. How did you? How did that happen? How'd you get over there from San Francisco?
1: Well, I didn't skip college per se. I uh, didn't get into the one university I wanted to get into, which was CalArts at the time. And I decided that I was just going to go to SMC and kind of study whatever fascinated me. So I took photography. I took Mesoamerican art history. I took creative writing. You know, I just kind of decided to treat my university education as an opportunity to learn all the things that I was curious about. That's and amazing. then, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, my grandmother's a, uh, an English teacher and that was one of the best things she ever said is, you know, unless you're clearly going after a specific vocation, go to school to become a better human being <laughs> and a smarter human being. Have a broad education and, and learn as much as you can. Um, So that's what I did, and and uh, I was think I was in like my second year, and you know you have to get. I was eventually going to transfer to, gosh, I don't even remember where. I was probably you know UCLA or something like that. Um, And I ended up uh, getting an email out of the blue from Anthony Gonzalez, who is essentially M eighty three, right, and he. Said that he loved my voice and wanted to see if I'd be interested in writing on his next album, which ended up being Saturdays Equals Youth. So I thought it was a prank because <laughs> I, I was a huge fan of his work. You know, I thought um, Don't Save Us from the Flames was like, pff, it was pretty earth shattering for me the first time that I heard it. And strangely enough, the whole reason he got my email and had not even heard me sing in the first place, because I wasn't making music at the time, you know, at least I wasn't releasing anything, was. Um, uh, Ava, the director of the film that I just went to Cannes with. I met her when I was 17 in a hallway at the AFI here in L.A. Oh, When wow. I was still an actress. Don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And uh, she was doing her first feature at the time. It never got released, but uh, she had asked Anthony to do the music for it, to to write, to write the score for it. And I think she felt guilty that she couldn't use me as an actress in the film because there was it was about an reagan family which clearly i am like the uh (laughs) (laughs) the most irish catholic jew you've ever (laughs) seen in your whole life um so whatever she couldn't use me in the film as an actress and so she uh gave anthony i think some you know crappy demos i was working on and and uh anyways long story short he really liked my voice and he started sending me demos and um i just furiously started writing lyrics and sending him vocal ideas to some of his tracks. And before I knew it, I was on a plane going to Wales to work on that record with him. And that's how I ended up in the band. Yeah,
0: That is amazing. That's awesome. So your first experience was in the studio with them then?
1: Oh my God, yeah, I was terrified. I was so (laughs) terrified. I was so, I was, I mean, can you imagine? It's like, I had zero, zero experience really being in the studio. I'd never made a record before i had never collaborated in that way before, even, you know, even though I had grown up in the theater and and I, I mean, I love collaboration. I thrive on collaboration. I prefer it to working alone, but I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep like the first two nights there. I was just so I was so nervous about fucking up, you know, or, you know, just <laughs> or not coming through, even though we had kind of set down this baseline comfort level in terms of exchanging ideas. Yeah. I did not know what the hell I was doing. So it was definitely jumping into the deep end.
0: Oh, that, yeah, that's I think some one of the most amazing things I've heard in a session was, like, at the very beginning of a session, you know, artists, producers, songwriters, you have to play that, like, get to know each other game, right?
1: It's speed dating.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? It's like speed dating. But exactly. uh, I mean, yeah. the, uh, the artist, the first thing out of her mouth was, you know, like, say anything. I don't care if it's good. I don't care if it's bad. Just say everything. Don't hold back. And you know, it just breaks the ice and makes everybody a little bit more comfortable. You know, Yeah,
1: I mean, it gets easier as you get older, let's be honest, you know, it's a muscle. So the more you do it, True. the more you kind of just, you show up and I don't know, maybe that's like the biggest gift of age is you just don't care anymore. <laughs> Like right. you can't. I don't mean it in that like pessimistic way, but it's like you just you you show up, you do your you do your thing. There's nothing to hide. You know, you get comfortable being in your own skin because it's the thing that you do every day. So
0: exactly, yeah. They they call it wisdom, but it, it's really uh, it's
1: exhaustion. Just, Let's be just honest. It's ex-
0: exhaustion <laughs> and, and lack of care. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking.
0: Oh, that's that's good. Okay, so you guys made that first record together not his first record but the first record you were involved with and then you were in the band on the road i'm assuming you guys are doing world tours european tours was that the first time you were on a stage in front of all those people
1: no i mean you know luckily in terms of performance that part was the easy part for me oh, okay. in the in the sense that you know i had grown up performing classically in front of audiences and also obviously within uh, my time in the in the theater so i was i was used to being on stage but it was a crash course in touring at a smaller uh, van level. I had never done that before. Uh, so, you know, we really, we, we, we had some tough tours, you know, some amazing tours and some tough tours, but at the time, you know, M83 wasn't huge. It was a cult band. Um, it was yeah. had a, like, like an incredibly devoted following. Um, I mean, I was so lucky to be, touring with Anthony at a time when especially with that particular album it, you could really sense that the wheels were the train was kind of leaving the station in a new way I think just for the um, just for his audience and and his his trajectory and his career and 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 with that body of work but um, but yeah so we did I think like two years two and a half years of like solid touring it was brutal, but it was what you're supposed to do in your 20s. And it was awesome. And we had a blast. It was fantastic.
0: Would you tell every musician that they got to spend a little bit of time in the van?
1: Hell yeah. yeah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yes, absolutely. You have to suffer a little bit and you figure it out. It also it makes you better. You know, it made it was literally a crash course in under understanding, you know, the technical side of touring. You have to learn how to take care of yourself on stage. Yeah that stage, all of it, you know, I think it's absolutely essential to suffer a little bit before you get to live in the lap of luxury.
0: That's right. Especially as a singer, you really have to understand your limits vocally when you're going day in and day out like that. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Okay. So like you said, the train's leaving <laughs> and we're, we're getting towards Hurry Up, We're Dreaming, which, you know, we've heard so many songs off of that, like constantly. What was that moment like? for you guys as a group did you see that coming when it blew up like that or was it a little surprising
1: I mean absolutely did not see it coming I think you know I'm fond of like reminding myself that I wrote the lyric to Midnight City in 15 minutes over a bottle of wine in my pajamas you know it's like it it's (laughs) you know when you're chasing a brass ring as a band it's very dangerous you know it's one thing if you're you know in songwriting camps for like rihanna or you know whomever if that's your job if you're a songwriter you're a pop songwriter you know you're doing two three sessions a day you know you're looking for that chorus you're looking for that hit that's a very specific lane but you know we were for all practical purposes a band and we made a record and um one of the songs just happened to do well and we really did not comprehend, I think at the time, what was about <laughs> to happen <laughs> and it was, it was, what a gift, you know, what an extraordinary gift, especially because we weren't aiming for that. We were just aiming to make a fucking amazing record and, um, to have it celebrated like that. There's nothing, nothing sweeter. You know, those moments don't come around all the time in a career and when they do happen, it's really good to stand back and be grateful. So,
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I do feel like that's like what you just said is kind of the key for any artist. It's is just make the best thing you can that feels like it represents you, and it's more likely to connect than trying to invent something that you think is going to work.
1: I mean, you that know, you just, just have to never make works. works.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, I mean,
1: I I mean, I you know, I could take you down a whole other tangential <laughs> conversation line with that because I mean, that's it's just a lesson that has to be learned, I think, by young artists. I've, I had to learn that lesson, you know? Um,
0: yeah. Even, well, even nobody would my, believe you. If, if, no, of you course. Know, some kid is sitting here listening saying, no way, they wanted that to be a hit. They sat around and made it a hit.
1: No, and, but, I mean, look, you can you can <laughs> aim to write a pop song. You know, popular music, you know, you can go for that pop structure. You can go for really hooky melodies, like, but that's not necessarily chasing what you think other people want to hear. you can have references that inform the kind of music that you're making. And I think that that's awesome. We all have that. I just made a record. That's exactly that, you know, I had very specific references for what I was trying to achieve, uh, with, with the album. And, um, but that doesn't mean that I'm spending even an iota of time trying to investigate what I think other people want to hear.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: pointless. It, 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 and every time I've done that in the past, which, thank goodness, has not been too much. It has left me feeling so bereft afterwards because when it doesn't do what you hope it's going to do, it leaves you that much more disappointed in the aftermath.
0: Yes, yeah, the expectations are are brutal yeah. for a musician if you think. And, that and it's then gonna you've work.
1: also exactly, and then you've also probably sacrificed pursuing the thing that you really wanted to pursue in the first place creatively. So you might as well just do the thing that you want to do, because at least at the end of it, you have something that you can be really proud of, whether it does well or not.
0: Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's like, basically, you you just summed up my show better than I ever have. (laughs) 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 Uh, But yeah, I I I mean, I can think of so many engineers and producers that I know, myself included, where you've like, you know, I've chased a gig or chased a credit. And you're like, this is the credit that's going to like make a difference. And You know, it doesn't, you know, it's the, it's surprising the records that you make or you write that keep people coming back. You're always like, it's (laughs) this one.
1: That's crazy. It's the cruelest irony, isn't it? Like it is, it It is literally never the thing in my entire, my God. Okay. So in my entire 20 years of my career, because my God, it's 20 years now, I'm getting old. Um, in the entire (laughs) 20 years of my career, any time that I thought something was going to do well. It was never that thing that took me to the next phase of my, you know, trajectory, my path. Um, right. and that's not, you know, that's not to say that like, well, no, I don't know, even know how to articulate it. Yeah. I, I just, I just, think it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's not to say that there aren't zeitgeist moments that you can sometimes feel like you're onto something and that you're like settling into a new groove <laughs> with the train tracks, you know? Um, <laughs> But I definitely think that our lives are, uh, our careers are a, a sum of all of their parts. It's not one thing that does something specific. It it might be the spark that lights the kindling that you've built up over the years, but it's really never just one thing. No,
0: no, definitely not. Yeah, that's, that's really well put. Well, you so you mentioned going on to the next path. So you just in your career you. You hit this M83 highlight moment. And then shortly after you leave the band, what was that decision like? Was that a hard decision? Was that a decision like, uh, this is now I'm going to do my other thing? I'm going to chase this other thing now?
1: Well, it wasn't shortly after, honestly. It was, you know, a solid seven to eight years of being in that band. Because I joined when I, in 2000 and 2008, oh my God, no. It, yeah, to 2007. No, I guess it was five years. Gosh, feels a, feels a lot longer. <laughs> Wait, um, hurry right, Up because, We're Dreaming was
0: like what twenty no, eleven?
1: No, 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 no. Hurry Up! Uh, oh yes, Hurry Up We're Dreaming was like twenty eleven, and my last gig was when we headlined the Hollywood Bowl in twenty twelve or twenty thirteen, okay. or I think it was twenty thirteen actually. Okay. Regardless, it uh, you know I was about to hit my 30s, and even though I was, you know, a, 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 a you know consistent and major contributor on the writing side for these two albums that I was lucky enough to be a part of, and obviously I sang on them, et cetera, and then played and all that jazz. It wasn't my band, yeah. you know, so I had this kind of come to Jesus moment where I was like, okay, well, at the end of the day, I'm not signed to this record deal. This isn't my band. I want something that's mine. And I, I was lucky enough to realize, you know, in my late twenties that you only start to have less and less energy as you get older. (laughs) So I knew there was like a limited amount of time to start making big moves. Right. Or at least I felt that way at the time. I, obviously, you know, you can change careers at fifty. I, I truly believe it's if, if it's where you're supposed to be, it will it will be what it will it will be. There's like no time limit on uh, choosing new paths. But at the time, I was very conscious that, you know, touring like that destroyed my personal life. It was brutal mentally, physically, and um, it just gets harder as you get older, no matter how comfortable. The touring situation is. So, and I think Anthony, you know, he's like a brother to me. I love him dearly, but I think, I think we were both just kind of ready for a change to be perfectly honest with you. And, uh, he tends to use different female vocalists for every album. And I got lucky in that I, I happened to be with him for two album cycles. So I think he was just ready for a change. And so was I, so it was kind of like a mutual um, parting of ways. You know, it was terrifying. I was really scared. It was my home, and it's what I knew. And the thought of starting fresh with my own project, because that seemed to be like the next natural step, was to write a record for myself. Was a humbling. It was. It was humbling. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, so then, that's the beginning of White Sea. Then,
1: yeah, uh, I kind of buckled. I mean, it's funny because in between Saturdays equals youth and Hurry Up, We're Dreaming, we obviously had time off in between record cycles. And I took it upon myself to start to learn how to produce an engineer because I hit this wall where I was like, I can't afford to pay anybody. And I was very lucky. My boyfriend at the time, he was like, well, why don't you just do it yourself? And I was like, wow. It was very disturbing to me in retrospect to realize that that was so not a part of the collective conversation that women can produce themselves. Like in my mind, it was some subconscious bullshit plant, you know, where it was like, well, you have to have a guy come in and do it for you. No one told me that, but it's like this subversive subconscious thing. And um, I will always eternally be grateful to him for kind of looking at me and just going, what are you talking about? Just figure it out. And I was like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> Thank that's you, buddy. Awesome. Um, and so I, you know, that's when I started doing remixing. And remixing was the thing that really was like crash course education for me. In, you know, I learned Pro Tools. Uh, that was the first DAW that I used. Um, and I started remixing. And so I got to learn how to produce. You know, I would get these sessions from people and I would learn about new plugins and this, that, and the other thing. So by the time I left M83, I was ready to make an album. And uh, my, manager at the time, uh, well, he's still my manager, Jonathan Daniel, who's just a guru, incredible, incredible human being. Um, he was like, I think you should produce this yourself. And I was like, okay, okay. And I don't know that I was quite ready for that, but I'm glad that I did it. I'm glad that I did it.
0: Yeah. Well, you have to, uh, I don't know, you just have to dive in there and do it. It's like the only way to learn to it do is. anything, you know? So, it is, it is. Well, did you find that, you were a little bit better set up for your your remix career because of your experiences with m83 absolutely yeah yeah you, you, some mean, doors were opened
1: uh, oh oh you mean in terms of opportunity or yeah
0: or e- opportunity or experience e- either or
1: um yes absolutely i mean you know when i first joined m83 i didn't know who tangerine dream was you know like it was it was it was it was a crash course education for me. I grew up listening to jazz, classical, and bands from the 70s that my dad used to, you know, do covers of in Nashville. So, you know, my <laughs> my musical education, and, and I also grew up as, like, when I got a little bit older as a teenager, the, the kind of more, you know, popular music I listened to was a lot of hip-hop and a lot of trip-hop. I didn't really get into the deep electronic vast expansive incredible world that it is until m83 anthony was kind of a really amazing teacher and he's a, just a voracious uh discoverer <laughs> so um so yeah it set me up not only in terms of like learning about synthesizers and understanding synthesis and and uh uh, but it, but obviously with the success of Midnight City and my credits on those two records, it opened obviously a lot of doors for me. And at the time, I was really the only woman that was getting hired by major labels to do remixes. It was always me and like, you know, five other guys doing remixes on like a Britney album or something like that. So awesome, there was, a, there was you know, it was great. But, it, you know, and it's not to make it into something that it's not. But there was a space there and um, and I filled it. And I'm really lucky to have had that opportunity. So...
0: If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. That's amazing. Did the remixes start to lead you towards your songwriting and your production for other artists portion of your career as well? Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, after after I put out the first White Sea record, which was a complete and total flop and failure, um, and rightfully so, because I hadn't found my voice yet, you know, I think I... I <laughs> I'm obviously being a bit uh, punchy, but... I <laughs> It was an experiment for me in retrospect. Like when I think back on it now, I was just figuring shit out. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. You know, I was like trying to see, I have so, there's so many types of music that I adore and that I love. And at the time I was just too green. And I'm also a late bloomer, I think creatively. I was just a little bit too green to understand what it was that was really me you know? So I kind of look at that record as a a way of exploring all the things I loved, whether it was Bowie or disco or Prince or, you know, um, big eighties power ballads, you know? So so, so it was a little bit of like a mishmash of just like, okay, we know what you like, but we don't know who you are. That's kind of how, what I walk away feeling about that first record. So I, I, ended up on a B market tour opening up for some friends of mine in the Naked and Famous. And it was my first taste of getting back in the van after, you know, ending, you know, and and by the way, I slogged it out at the beginning of M83. I know what it is to slog, (laughs) (laughs) but I was about to hit 30 and I found myself in the back of a van and I was like, no, this is not good. (laughs) This is not where I saw my life heading. (laughs) Um, so I came off of that and I was like, I'm going to start to write songs for other people. Let's, let's see what that feels like. And, uh, and that's when I started doing some stuff with Panic and I started doing a bunch of different co-writes, you know, kind of the, the revolving door of co-writes here in LA, which was a huge, huge education. And I met some incredible people and it's, um, I have deep respect for songwriters that, that show up every day and do that.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah,
1: and realize that wasn't for me either. <laughs> <laughs> I love to co-write with people, but not on that schedule. You know. Yeah,
0: it. It. I spent a lot of time engineering for writing sessions, and it's impressive—two, three sessions a day. Like, I don't know how some of those some of those people do it. But they I mean, kill the, it. you know,
1: been, the people that do it well are—they're brilliant. You they're know, so wh- good. where they pull from, and and just their dexterity with words and ideas and. I have deep respect for for you know career songwriters for sure.
0: Oh yeah, especially the people that can just craft such a memorable melody.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, just Mm -hmm. like the first
0: time you hear it, it's just jammed in your head. It's never going away.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, whether
0: you like pop music or not, some people hate pop music. I mean, it's infectious. I love pop music. I I do too. I I, love pop music. Love everything about it. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you've done up to this point uh, like a million things in music now you have transitioned into film work and scoring tv shows and movies and it sounds to me just from our conversation so far that you described anthony as a what a a voracious discoverer i think is what you said i mm-hmm. mean i feel like that that kind of also describes you like you're just talking about all the things you're learning all the places you're going all the paths you're going you. down
1: i appreciate that thank you
0: so uh, what what was the spark for jumping on the on the film scoring train now
1: unhappiness okay you know i i think that i had I had explored at that point, obviously, being a part of a band, you know, touring, uh, writing for other people, remixing, producing for other people, which I also don't like to do. I like to do <laughs> additional production, but I don't like being a producer of a record. Like, I, I, I did it once, I'll never do it again. It's not, I am not built for it. So, you know, it's it was like, you know, making my own music, I, I, I think that it, it was all a process of discovery just to flex different creative muscles to see what felt best. And, um, you know, after I kind of crunched the numbers, because also let's be honest, we have to talk about making a living as well. And obviously residuals are not always going to be a river that runneth over. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I, uh, I just feel very fortunate. Ava, my, my dear friend, was now officially about to make her first feature because the, the initial one that Anthony had been working on, like, all those years ago never came out. So this was going to be her first official feature. And I don't know what came over. I don't even remember what motivated me to ask her, but I said, I would really love the opportunity to score your film. And I uh, had never scored anything. And, uh, you know, and obviously she's... Um, She's my wife and sister, and in all ways, like you know, she's my best friend. We talk every day, even though she's in Paris. And uh, she was a bit reticent, understandably so, because when you work with people that you deeply care about, the stakes are higher. And I said, okay, well, look, let me take the first ten pages of the script, and let me just write you a piece of music. And if you're crying, hire me. And she said, okay, go for it. So no, and no I, picture, just no, just no, the script. Okay, just just the script. So I did that, and it actually ended up being the first track of the movie. And uh, I wrote 90% of that score prior to them shooting. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've never had an experience like that again. It was quite a unique way to jump into that world. But we were just so connected, and I knew exactly what she wanted, and it was the perfect perfect kind of score for me to like get in there and figure things out. And I mean, in retrospect, there are a lot of things that I should have done a lot better and a lot more professional, but you know what, you make it work. And, you know, I relied on people that I trusted and, and, uh, and was lucky enough to, um, to not mess it up too badly. The, f- <laughs> the film ended up doing really well and kind of has become like a cult, a little bit of a cult film. Um, that movie is called, uh, Bang Gang. Not Gang Bang, Bang Gang. <laughs> it's a French movie. Um, and, uh, and I just fell in love with the process. Oh, my God. It was the first time in so long where I just felt sparked. I felt so sparked. I was so excited. All of a sudden, all of these melodic ideas that would have never been possible to use in a pop session became gems and uh, could sing within the context of a score and it was, it just reignited my, my passion, I think, for making music, which had kind of felt like such a burden for, for such a long time. Um, I do I, I think I was just burnt out on the way that I was making music. So uh, I decided on a whim after uh, somebody at my management company suggested it, a wonderful mentor, Patricia Joseph, she said, have you thought about applying to the Sundance lab? And I was like, what's the Sundance lab? You know, I was a total idiot. And, uh, and I applied and I got in, which in retrospect is very humbling. Once again, I, you know, there's only six spots a year.
0: Oh, wow. You go up
1: to Skywalker Ranch for two weeks and it's, um, it's, you know, it's very prestigious. And I, I feel so fortunate to be a part of that community and a part of that family now. Um, and I got there and I was like, oh my God, I found my people. I found my tribe. I was so challenged. My peers were just so leaps and bounds ahead of me. And I had so much to learn from them. And it, I, I love being challenged like that. It really brings out the best in me when I have, people around me that I really deeply respect um, that I want to meet. I want to meet them on their level, you know? So yeah, so I got out of the Sundance Lab and I swear to God, I hit the ground running. I just started getting calls. It was just the most kismet experience. And that was one of the best things about the lab is that um, it gives you a community. So it starts connecting you with people and it was, it was really, really phenomenal experience and it, and and it's led me to be, you know, six years later now. uh, pretty much mainly only composing these days. I still write with artists occasionally and I'm actually gonna start getting back into that again because I miss it. And I've realized this year that I need to balance more. I need to work out all of those muscles. Otherwise I'm creatively very unhappy. And that was that's kind of the biggest lesson of my entire career is just understanding my own creative apex, you know? Right. Nexus, what would the word be? I don't know, <laughs> you don't know <what> have <laughs> to say. <laughs> yes, totally. Some 25 cent uh, word.
0: Yeah, there was there was a bunch in there, but I wanted to go all the way back. Mostly a question for me: the first movie you did that you scored without Pitcher, did you have to go back and like move a lot of stuff around? And no, it just it just it worked.
1: It just worked.
0: That's and by really the way, really cool. Know,
1: don't forget this: she was cutting with it. She was editing with with the music.
0: I guess that's true. Yeah.
1: So it's almost like a music video, if really you know when you kind of boil it down. Yeah. Um, Or, you know, slices of music video. And, um, you know, there were a couple tracks, obviously, that, you know, there's certain things to be adjusted. But I mean, the first track of the movie that opens the film, the first cue, like I didn't change anything on that.
0: That's really cool. That's awesome. I I was just curious whether you had to. It's never happened
1: again, by the way. (laughs) It's like the (laughs) only time it's ever happened like that. It's like the dream. It set me up for continual disappointment. You know, it's like, (laughs) it'll never be as good as when it first started, honey, get used to it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the, uh, it's the, you know, the beginner's brain type thing. Um, all right. Which is
1: such a good, I just want to say such an important place to be and to be an acknowledgement of it when you're in it because there's so much discovery there. There's so much possibility there. You're not bogged down by bullshit.
0: So, right, yeah. yeah. When the, when you don't know that there are, quote, rules, you're just like, you're free to do whatever.
1: Well, that was one of the hardest things for me, by the way, coming into composition. When I was at the lab, you know, two of my dearest friends um, uh, who are both Absolutely brilliant composers, Alexi Grapsis and Amy Doherty. You know, they had a classic composition upbringing and education. You know, uh, Amy went to Berkeley. I can't remember. uh, Alexi, you know, they, they both had higher education, orchestration, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, when I got to Sundance, I was very intimidated. You know, even though I had been trained classically, I don't, my sight reading is shite. And you know, I'm, it's my theory, all of it. Obviously the composition world has opened up a lot in terms of electronic scores being just as prevalent as more traditional um, formats of scoring, but I'll never forget, you know, (laughs) I had such imposter syndrome but you have three mentors over the course of the first week and you have to, to re-score a scene from a movie that they've scored. So uh, it was fascinating. We got to see everything projected. You know, each, each alumna, you know, had their thing projected after we had worked on it for like two days straight or whatever. And Alexi came up to me afterwards, we had Christoph Beck uh, as our last mentor. And he was like, you know, Kibby, it's always so interesting to see what you do. He's like, every time we watch our clips, I'm always excited to see what you've done because it's not like anything any of us would do. And there is a power in that, you know, I I think education is crucial and you have to stay curious and keep learning, which obviously I do. on my own time and within the context of working on a project. But there's a lot of beauty in also not knowing because Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid of making mistakes. I kind of don't care what the right thing to do is. If it moves you, then it's working, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I have like a, it comes up on the show every so often. It was such a love-hate relationship with music education. I went to music school, I went to Berkeley. And it was a, a really great experience and it would built a really great network. But at the same time, you definitely have you have a blueprint. And not that there's anything wrong with having a blueprint, but you look at the people that came before you that are your idols, and a lot they never had a blueprint. They were whatever. So I mean, they were making beats in their bedroom or, or, right, or whatever. Exactly. Like they, there were no yeah. rules for these people that are inspiring you. And then you go and you you get some rules but yet it's also very, it's a very powerful tool education. So it, uh, I don't know, I go both ways. Oh, sometimes. it's a
1: double-edged sword for it sure. It also depends on what you're trying to do. Like yeah. if you're going to be a doctor, you should probably go to school. <laughs> you know what I mean? We are if pro you're gonna,
0: doctors going to school here.
1: Exactly. If you <laughs> want to be an orchestrator, you should probably go to school. Do, do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. and I'm so, I'm actually fast. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm Uh so fascinated, like, can you nutshell, like, the concept of the blueprint that you were given at school? Because I don't know what that means. Is that, like, approach to scoring? Is that approach to, is it theory? Is it technical? Like, what what do you mean by blueprint?
0: Um, Well, in my case, I studied engineering and production. So my blueprint was kind of, this is what you do in a session. This is what your first job is going to be. This is what your second job is going to be. Then you're going to get this promotion. Um, And basically, I guess I'm, I'm describing a career path that existed maybe 20 years ago that I don't think exists anymore, the right. traditional studio path. Right. You know, from a, I was, you know, not the worst guitar player at Berkeley, but I, I had to be in the bottom 10. Oh, um, I'm going
1: to beat you. I'm the sh- <laughs> most shite guitar player. I mean, obviously, look at these things.
0: <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, from like a theory perspective, like I, I learned a lot of theory and I mean, I can't sight read for shit, so... Um, mostly I'd spent all my time in that engineering program. So the blueprint that that I talk about is kind of a career trajectory okay, type Okay, thing. so,
1: yeah. okay, interesting, interesting, yeah. Because, yeah. like, when you talk about theory, like, for me, that's that's still the thing I feel very self-conscious about. My theory is very mediocre, um, you know, voicings, et cetera. But it was interesting, you know, I, I randomly found online, because, like I said, you have to stay curious. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. You have to keep learning, whether it's within a collaboration or it's on a project or self-education. I mean, I'm like a YouTube addict when it comes to just learning new techniques, you know, whatever, but I, I ended up finding randomly a teacher from USC who did private lessons. Because I, I'm not going to go back to school at this point, you know. It's, it's like late. I have bills to pay. It's too late, but I want to continue to learn. So he would come over once a week for a couple months. This was like before the pandemic, and um, and I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll just get like I need I need to like beef up my theory because I'm now starting to do scores that are orchestral, and I need to know what the hell I'm doing. You know, I don't have an assistant. I don't have. I mean, I work with an amazing orchestrator, but still. Um, But what was fascinating is that we didn't end up doing any theory. He gave me this crash course in... I mean, we would just sit there and dialogue back and forth about music, and he would show me these obscure medieval techniques and concepts. And to me, that was actually just as important as knowing, you know, it, it opened up ideas. It was like, how do I spark new ideas? You know, if he would come in and I'd be like, okay, I'm working on a horror TV show. Like, can we talk about extended techniques for strings? Because I'd like to try some new stuff. And he'd be like, ooh, have you heard this? And we'd download the sheet music and we would like look at that together. Um, That's cool. so my theory is still quite mediocre, but I'm also realizing that just through doing it now enough, you kind of just figure it out and you, you know, you learn as you go. And, um, and it definitely, uh, helps me take risks, not knowing. Yeah. <laughs> Mistakes well, maybe.
0: <laughs> where do you think music theory plays into modern music creation? Do you think music theory is important to a certain level for people?
1: I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, let me put it this way, from the point of my own ignorance. I think that there are ways of looking at a piece of music that you're writing, let's say for an orchestral score. I don't care about the right voicings. You know, they don't necessarily sound better to me, for example, but... Sometimes I do wonder, without a better foundation, theoretically speaking, if there aren't ideas that I am not pulling at to help in my creative process. So that's that's the one place where I think um, that not having a better theoretical background is is um, frustrating for me creatively. Mm. Um, but I don't think it's necessary, you know it also depends on the kind of scores that you're doing you know if you want to do solely orchestral scores then probably having a stronger theory background is crucial I mean, maybe yeah. not i don't know you know but there's a reason why johnny greenwood's music sounds the way that it does when he does his scores you know he he has a classical education if you're doing, you know, a Stranger Things type show, no. <laughs> you need an ARP 2600 and you're good to go, you know? <laughs> just you're, you
0: just have to be a child of the 80s and you're good.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I, I
0: love I love the music in there. I love all that.
1: Oh, I love, I love, I love them. They're great. Yeah.
0: yeah. I feel like uh, ever since that show, I feel like I've seen other shows kind of shift their score to have that little bit of like 80s synth. Um, feeling to it. And I'm like, you guys really like, you left a stamp there with that opening sequence.
1: They you did. Know? They did. I mean, that opening sequence is, is 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 timeless. It's fantastic. I also think it's such a shame though because like, synths don't have to mean 80s. You know, some of the best synth music was made in the 70s. Like, it's not, it doesn't have to sound 80s if it's got a synthesizer in it, you know? Yeah. Um, especially when you're dealing with analog and you're dealing with, um, you know, modular God, the soundscapes can be so modern and so organic, too, you know, especially when they're blended with other things, which I I tend to like to do a lot. So
0: I normally close the show with one question, but I am trying a new thing. You are the guinea pig. I'm going to close the show with with two questions. So there is now a second question added in. And we've probably touched on this a little bit, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Is there a time in your career when you actively chose to redefine what, quote, success was for you?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's a really important question. And I'm always curious to hear that answer from other artists. Um, For me, I think when I switched over to composition as my focus and I realized that, you know, I mean, granted, I was lucky. I got to have a taste of the rock star experience, you know. Um, But by the way, at my core, I'm really a performer. Like that's really what I love to do. I love, that has never changed, that will never change. I love being on stage. It's literally the number one feeling in my life is to perform for people. Because of that, I always thought that my career would be a success if I had a a successful performance-based career. When I switched over to composition and I realized how much joy I had, from writing music in such a different way that was never going to have me be on stage. You know, I'm I'm not going to go perform my scores. Um, even though people do that occasionally, you know, you don't go on tour with a score. Um, I I guess, unless you're Max Richter, I don't know. (laughs) Um, but, uh, I thought prior to that decision, I always felt like if I quote unquote, gave up the dream of being a rock star, that I would have been a failure, that I would not have done the thing that I set out to do. But when I started composing and I realized how much more it was using my brain in a really proactive, challenging way, and that I could make music in a way that was sparking me at the time, it um it completely redefined what i thought my career was going to look like and what i thought of as success and so success for me became less about the achievement and more about frankly what what brings me joy i mean i don't mean to sound like a hippie but i do think that's also part and parcel with getting older and i think that that is such a gift you know i think it's yeah. i think smart people, no matter what your career is, no matter what, you know, iteration it takes are people that pursue the things that spark them and that bring them joy and that make them feel, uh, continually curious. And I found that. And now I know that when I feel like I need to try something new, I always do it.
0: Amazing. Yeah, I agree completely. That's why I put the question in there because I feel like everybody that's been in the music business long enough, they've, they've kind of like chased some image or some idea to a certain point and then eventually you're like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if everybody thinks I'm supposed Honestly. to be this because I want to do that
1: yeah so exactly exactly that's a
0: really amazing answer I, I love that I'm I'm glad uh I'm glad you were the first one to answer
1: oh well um, thank you
0: <laughs> so uh, I've had an awesome time hanging out I, I, I'll give you my my usual closing question I don't know if you listen to the show but uh, i do
1: right- i i dove into all the episodes i absolutely oh, adore did. the show i think oh. it's fantastic yeah oh,
0: amazing thank you no I'm, that that's humbling um <laughs> i appreciate it uh so what right now is your current big goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to do to go towards it
1: <laughs> well you're catching me at an odd time um perfect yeah maybe not so perfect for me but perfect for answering your question and for keeping people listening uh and if this is at all interesting Um, I, you know, when I started composing, I was 30 and that is a bit late in the grand scheme of things to start that particular career. I entered into a second season of saying yes to everything. I think there are seasons in life where you have to earn your place at the table and it's not 10,000 hours, it's a hundred thousand hours and it's brutal. (laughs) It really is brutal. It is Um, because it doesn't happen magically for most of us. We have to work really hard and you know, uh, anyways, I exited the season of yes, where you say yes to everything to, I had to build my resume. I had to, I had to firmly wedge my foot in the door. And I exited that right before COVID and was very lucky to do some really extraordinary projects during COVID, whether it was, you know, the Lady Gaga stuff right before things shut down, literally two weeks before things shut down. And then I went straight into Grand Army, the Netflix show. And I made a very conscious decision to like take better care of myself because I was working 16 hours a day, seven days a week, and I just couldn't physically sustain it anymore. So I exited the season of yes, entered a season of uh, sporadic no's when I feel like it's appropriate to try to be more specific about what I do so that I don't get hired for things that I don't want to do because I don't want to work on things I don't want to work on anymore. And I feel like I've earned the right to do that at this point in my career. So. Having done that though, it completely, this is a long winded answer. I'm sorry. (laughs) Having done that, it completely shifted my perspective on my creativity again. And I found myself really, really, really missing being on stage, especially, you know, COVID compounded something that was already brewing for me. So, um, and I, I went through a breakup and uh, I escaped to the desert and wrote an album in two months. And I have never felt like I've ever found my voice as a solo artist until now by making this record. Um, I am so excited to put some time into that and to be performing again and and singing again. And... um, it feels like I've never done it before because this genuinely is the first time I feel like I've ever had real access to my voice, and it's taken me a very long time to find it, and a lot of really crappily written songs to get there. But uh, but I'm there now, and it feels really exciting. It feels really exciting. So I'm focusing on that and um, promoting Mothering Sunday, which I'm just—it's I. Simultaneously feel like this is the best score I've ever written. I'm really proud of the work and hopefully being a little bit more balanced in terms of my personal performance, creative outlet, along with composition, which is difficult, but I'm, I'm going to attempt to try to find that over the next year. So,
0: I feel like balance is the lifelong quest.
1: It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. I mean, like exist. you know, people that say you can have it all and have balance are just full of shit. <laughs> it's not possible. It's not possible. Let me put it to you this way. The last week of working on mothering Sunday, I was pulling 20 to 22 hours a day. Oh my my God. hips were in so much pain from sitting at my desk that they now will not stop cracking. <laughs> so.
0: Oh, yes. I do not miss those days. I just did did a a project for a week that it was 18 hours a day, and I haven't done that in so long. I think I'm still recovering.
1: Yeah. It's just so tough, though, don't you feel like? Because, look, it doesn't always pan out like this, but, you know, going to Cannes and having such an incredible reception for the movie in tandem with the music also being pointed out so specifically, you know, you have those moments where you step back and you go... God, it was brutal, but it was worth it, you know? It is
0: worth it. If you're, if you know, as long as it's something that you're passionate about and you enjoy it, I mean, if it's a project that you shouldn't have done in the first place and it's taken 20 hours a day, yeah. you know, I, I think you and I have been doing this long enough that we wouldn't have said yes to that gig, but right. early in your career, you're going to say yes to a lot of those. And, and you eventually should. you'll, yeah, and you should, because you learn a lot from doing every. You literally have to do everything just to figure out what you're doing.
1: Yeah, also what you like, do. Even to this day, I have, even though I can't physically bring myself to work as much as I have been in the past, because it's just really time to be more selective, just as a, as, as a strategic way to get where I want to go creatively, I still have trouble turning things down sometimes because it's like, every time I've said yes to something, I meet one person that later on recommends me for the gig that I really wanted. Or, yeah. or I write one cue or write one song or one lyric that maybe doesn't get you, whatever it is yeah. that, you know, it all, it's, it's snowball. It all feeds, it all feeds, you know, it's that collective, um, that collection of moments and experiences, jobs, people that equal a career. So it's, it's hard. It's hard sometimes to say no to things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I I was I wrote a note here to, to highlight that. It seems like, you know, your first score was your friend from like 15, 20 years ago. And it, you mm-hmm. seem to like really have a good network of friends that are collaborators and, and people that you work with. And I think that's something else that's also important is that people remember that it's more fun to do this all with friends, you know, and people that you trust and not just Hollywood networking I'm doing air quotes for people that can't see this but um. uh,
1: I mean here's the thing it's like I can sit here talking about like you know choices and strategy and this that and the other like at the end of the day I surround myself with people that feel like my community my chosen family that's where all the best work comes from it doesn't come from people that I dislike (laughs) you know what I mean like (laughs) And I also don't work with people. I dislike I'd rather quit. I have no problem quitting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I
1: mean, I've only quit once in my life, but you know, (laughs) your career and the projects you're working on and the experience that you have and the work itself in and of itself, the creativity, the final product, it's all a product of it's holistic. You surround yourself with incredible collaborators, you're going to have great collaboration. You surround yeah. yourself with kind, thoughtful, curious people that align or or just or not. You you align yourself with people that live in the same ethos as you. Mm. It's going to be an amazing career. It's going to be an amazing project. And that is a basic tenant that I hold to and it's never ever steered me wrong. So
0: amazing. That that is a that's an ultimate closer. So let's Let's do it, Morgan. Thank you so much. This uh, this was. I mean, I really, really enjoyed this. I would. We we should do this again. Um,
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's on, a joy. <laughs> on, uh,
0: One hundred episodes from now, you're coming back. Uh, do you want to share websites or or anything with people where they can co- go and find you or management or whatever?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I'm. I I don't really use Twitter. I'm a, like I'm a Twitter stalker. I don't really post, but uh, I do post stuff on Instagram, and it's uh, White Sea Music and my website is just morgankibbe.com and that's awesome all the contact info is is there yeah
0: amazing awesome well thank you so much have a great day i'm glad we thank got to you. squeeze this in in the morning but, absolutely yeah, thank you
1: thank you so much
0: <laughs> so that's a wrap on episode 42 thanks so much to morgan kibbe for coming on the show please go check out her work and if you've been enjoying the show, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. Those are the biggest things you can do at this time to support the show. Also, we are rapidly approaching our one-year mark, which is crazy. Uh, I've got some changes in mind for the show, uh, but I also want to hear your thoughts. So if you have a guest recommendation or you have thoughts about the show, positive or negative, please email me at progressionspod at gmail.com. I will read all of your emails. Also, be warned, I will be adding you to my mailing list, (laughs) but you will not be spammed. I promise that. Also, don't forget that we do have a Patreon now for the show if you'd like to support it in that manner. Be greatly appreciated. And finally, as usual, don't forget to join us at completeproducer.net and get in on our community there. It's a lot of fun. So we'll see you next week.